Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Well, get ready because you're about to hear one of the most dramatic turnaround stories out there. Because my guest today is Dr. Bob Grossman, the CEO of NYU Langone Health. When he took over in 2007, the hospital had a structural deficit with rundown facilities and a team that wasn't really tuned in to a bigger vision. Now, fast forward to today. They're ranked as the number three hospital in the United States. He's grown their revenue from $2 billion to $11 billion. And they're studied as the model of how to run a patient-centered, successful health organization. You're going to hear how it happened today. And as you might expect, Bob shares a lot of wisdom about culture and vision. But you know, you need more than that to make big things happen. You need accountability because that's how you make sure those big ideas are actually showing up in the work day to day. If you want your team performing at the highest level, if you want them to really own their actions and decisions, then keep listening and learn how to create more accountability for your organization. So without further ado, here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Dr. Bob Grossman. Bob, we're going to get to your amazing turnaround story in a, in, a, in a few minutes, but I always like to start out at the beginning. Now, you went into radiology, and I know you were at NYU, and you built one heck of a department there. It's one of the departments that was very highly rated. Exactly. Tell us how you got the CEO job of NYU. Uh, <laughs> well, it was interesting. So I came to NYU in 2001. I had been uh, at University of Pennsylvania, a Penn medical student. And then I came back there. I actually uh, was in neurosurgery, came back there in radiology and then went to NYU. And NYU at the time was a rather weak department of radiology and they had lousy equipment and equipment and capital in radiology is very important. Somebody said, well, you're, uh, we're a Siemens site for imaging. I said, well, what do we get from Siemens? You know, we're right in the middle of Manhattan. And they said, oh, we get pulse sequences. And pulse sequences are uh, the software that really drive the mag uh, MR scanner. I said, pulse sequences. I said, let's see how much we're really worth. Let's do an RFP and have Siemens and General Electric compete to see who could be a single vendor. And that was pretty interesting. And we got them to compete. Ken Langone recused himself because he had been on the board of General Electric. And Siemens won, and we got a hundred plus million dollars in the deal. And Ken Langone, that caught Ken Langone's eye. And Ken was the the chairman of NYU. Correct. Langone. Yeah, absolutely. So you're running the radiologist department. It's interesting. You know, you're in a hospital that basically is not doing well. Okay, but you excelled with your department. How did you build a, a department of excellence in an overall environment that was on the decline? I created and tapped into the aspirational vision of individuals in the department who wanted to be great, who yearned for that. And I said, we're going to be the best department in the world. And people, I remember one person saying in the department, Bob, let me get this right. We're an ocean liner and you're going to turn it on a dime? And I said, yeah. And I only accepted excellence. Everybody has to ask the question, whatever they're doing, is this world class? And they got it. 
and we were able to recruit great people and it turned around. And, you know, one thing begets another if you do it correctly. Did you really want the CEO job when it came up? I didn't think about it. I've always been in the moment. I never looked over my shoulder for the next job and they just came to me as opposed to me trying to be a CEO. I, I never thought about it. And somebody asked me in the search committee, would you apply to be, would you like to apply to be the dean and CEO? And I thought about it and I said, sure, but it wasn't in my, it wasn't in my thinking at all. So you're like a great athlete, you just kind of stay in, in the moment, in the present and don't get, stay more of a neutral state. Correct. And I never, um, I, I think I always say we run our own race. I'm not reactive or proactive. So I'm sure NYU looked outside for a CEO. You were an insider and you get the job. Do you think having that uh, experience inside was a big, big plus for you? Huge plus. And I, I think it's very important because traditionally academic medical centers and businesses look particularly at your curriculum vitae. And I have to say nothing, very little in my curriculum vitae or anybody's curriculum vitae predicts how well a leader they're going to be. It's very interesting. But it did help that I understood some of the issues as I saw them. I knew the people, I knew the good people and the not so good people. So it enabled me uh, to be very uh, aggressive uh, early on in my tenure. Yeah. yeah. In, in you know, the, the NYU Langone... <laughs> story really begins with, with adversity. Can you kind of set the stage for us on, on what it was like when you were CEO? Yes. So I started, I was named the uh, Dean and CEO in March, uh, 2007, but I started in July and I asked for all this information and they had these books, these thick binders full of books and they couldn't give me all the information. I said, there's something wrong with this system. I'm going to be, it's like flying. And at that time, we were about $2 billion business. And it's like flying a 747 without any control panel. And on top of that, when I started to uh, dig into the finances, we had a structural deficit of about $150 million a year, which was backstopped by a, a royalty from the drug Remicade, which is very dangerous because if you have an event like Vioxx, the drug is out and you're going bankrupt. And so we were confronted with financial instability. Our bonds were about junk rated uh, and the facilities uh, were old. That was the, <laughs> that's what it looked like. And I didn't know anything. <laughs> other, <laughs> other than, than that, that, it's great, right? Other than that, it's perfect. <laughs> well, this is where your optimism had to, had to be a big plus for you as well. Why'd you have a strong belief that you could turn the business around? Because you, you had to. Um, well, I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't afraid of the job and I never thought I was going to fail. I thought I knew what, I wanted to do, and I said, we are gonna be a world-class, patient-centered, integrated academic medical center. And people, you know, uh, at first were negative and not believers, but that was the vision. We tapped in, again, tapped into the aspirations of the people who work there. And I said, we're not gonna accept anything except, uh, again, uh, what does it take to be excellent? Bob, that phrase world-class is thrown around a lot and loosely. 
you know, how did you make it mean something at NYU? So actually in my investiture speech, I spoke about what it meant to be world-class. And I said, you can tell by the metrics, by the people who come here, by who we recruit, how we feel about ourselves. And we, it would be proclaimed by external metrics, not us, uh, not us just saying it, by deeds, not words. You know, you've talked a couple times already about the importance of having an aspirational goal because people want to be a part of something great. Talk a little bit more about that and how you really came to that conclusion. Well, I think it's part of me. I always aspired to be a part of something great. And I think in general, a lot of people do. And, you know, many individuals have it in their innate ability to do something great. I was speaking to the head of neurology uh, who came and transformed a horrible department into maybe arguably the best neurology department in the world. And he, he didn't realize he had the gifts to be able to do that. And I, so, so a lot of people, you give them the confidence in the institution and what you're doing. And actually, they're wonderful and they can do the job. You know, I know, Bob, you describe yourself as an unfiltered leader. What do you mean by that? Right. So that came out, out of this uh, book by uh, Gautam Makunda. What it means is a lot of people come up through organizations and are um, sort of nurtured by the organization. And those are generally people who do okay, but they're not going to be either exceptionally good or exceptionally bad. And then there are the people who are um, unfiltered leaders who don't come up the ordinary way, who have different life stories, if you will, uh, and different experiences, and you put them in a position of leadership, and either they could be very great. Abraham Lincoln was considered a you know, giant, un unfiltered leader. Winston Churchill, unfiltered leader. A lot of leaders who come up, say, in, in General Electric, are, are filtered leaders, great leaders, but can either be very good or very bad because they've been trained in the system. And I clearly, I had no business experience. I didn't know what a board was. I, ha I had no idea how they operated. I had a little management experience. So you basically didn't have any biases that got you in the way of really pursuing the truth of what it would take to turn around the business? Is that a I, definition? I think, yes. I also think I was much more audacious. You know, I was at Harvard Business School. They did the ca a case study of what we had done after Hurricane Sandy. And I remember sitting as a fly in the audience and the case is presented. And I'm thinking, if I went to business school, I would never have been as audacious as I <laughs> It would have scared the hell out of you, right? Because, right, because they, they, these guys were. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of audacious, you know, you said you knew a lot of the, the staff when you took over as CEO and, it, it, and encouraged you to move quickly. You made some big calls. You took out a lot of people very early on. Tell, how many people did you move out? We took out the top five people and the six person resigned. So the CFO, uh, the president of the hospital, the vice president of the hospital, the chief medical officer, the head of HR, and the senior vice dean on the school side. So all the management left. Jeez. How'd you get the courage to really follow your conviction on that? Because obviously you knew there had to be change, but you know, you could go in there and be a little tepid. How fast did it take you to do this? I did it in one day. I fired all of them in one day. As soon as you became CEO? Yeah. First now that's, that, that takes a real strong conviction that you know. 
<laughs> or, <laughs> well, I didn't think about it. It's interesting. I knew I was right. Intrinsically, I just said, we're going to do this. And of course, I spoke to uh, Ken Langone and he agreed. I, you know, th that was the thing I, Harvard Business School, they didn't get that. <laughs> but it was the right thing to do. Well, you do. clearly shocked the system and people knew there was a new sheriff in town. There's no True. question about that. How important do you think that is as a leader when you take over? I think it's very important. I, I, one of the things about leadership is it starts when they push the button and you have to get going. You can't take a while that people are expecting changes and the expectations are very high and to sit there and just wait and wait and wait, you lose that reservoir of support that you have initially. I learned that much later. <laughs> because you're listening to this, I can tell you're the kind of person who wants to learn how to lead well. But there's a lot of companies out there who want to take that desire and charge you $500 or $1,000 or heck, even $20,000 to try and show you how to lead. That's just not right. If you want to be a better leader, I believe you deserve to have access to something that will truly help you. And it shouldn't cost a fortune. So I want you to go to howleaderslead.com and start my leadership class. It's really and truly free. And after you take this class, you're going to feel more confident in your role and you'll be on your way to getting big things done with your team. Go check it out at howleaderslead.com. Besides letting those top people go and replace them with talented people, you took some real specific actions to let people know that things were going to be different around here and, and, and drive home the belief that you could actually become world-class. Can you, can you share a few examples? Yeah, I, I just make an observation. So one of the members on our board was John Stewart, who had been the former CEO of McKenzie. And when, when he heard what I was doing, he said, Bob, it's never going to work. Uh, you can't do all this change. Organizations can't absorb it. A year later, he came back to me. He said, you were exactly right. <laughs> so, so, and that was, I, I thought that was pretty interesting. But uh, we changed uh, in three dimensions. So, we, again, the missions of an academic medical center are education, research, and clinical care. We measured, we became very uh, metrically driven on the clinical side and on the research side. And that's very important because previously, a lot of the investigators. Uh, had lived in the ether of ambiguity. So if you don't measure it, they think they're great. I and love they, that ether of ambiguity. Uh, That's a great phrase. Thank you. When there's no transparency, everybody thinks they can do whatever the hell they want and they just can proclaim themselves being great. And then on the educational side, we said we're gonna transform the curriculum to the 21st century. And on the uh, clinical side, as I said, we held people accountable, uh, both on the ambulatory side and the inpatient side. Well, tell us a story about the elevators, for example, in terms of a specific action. So the Tisch Hospital, which was our, uh, which is our flagship hospital, Tisch Hospital had these elevators, uh, and the elevators, uh, it, and the metaphor was, they were so out of date that in order to go up, you had to go down. 
<laughs> because you couldn't get in on the first floor because it was yeah. too crowded. And it was horrible because doctors were then reluctant to see patients because it took 20 minutes to get up. I said, we're gonna do elevators. And they, everybody looked at me and said, well, you can't put in elevators. I said, of course we can. And we got a, a wonderful gift from the Tisch family. And we put in external elevators outside the building and it transformed the way uh, patients were seen and the whole workflow because nurses and doctors, uh, et cetera, didn't want to take 20 minutes to go up and down in the elevators for lunch breaks. So you saw very quickly a problem that had been occurring for years. 50, that every, 50 years. 50 years. And it was so visible that it probably had as much impact in terms of telling everybody things are going to be different as anything you could have done, right? Uh, correct. That was uh, one thing, definitely. And then I said, we're going to build a new hospital pavilion. And everybody said, no. And there were a lot of those type of moments where uh, you had all the naysayers. And I said, of course, we're going to do this. Yeah, you make it sound so easy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, organizationally, you, you talk about replacing silos with clouds. That's an interesting concept. Explain that one. Right. Well, in healthcare and in businesses in general, people tend to be siloed. And in order to really create value and energy, you have to break through the silos and enable cross-pollination, if you will. And so we um, incentivize people to work together and again, part of it is creating transparency and everybody sees what they're doing and understanding the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and incentivizing that. Yeah. And you talked about, you know, the importance to move to being patient centered. You know, that seems like, well, of course, why wouldn't you be customer focused? Was, was that a big insight? Did everybody say, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's be more patient centered. Or was or do you have to sell that uphill? Yeah. They liked the idea, but they didn't know what patient-centered was. And, and I think that's very important because in healthcare, once you change the construct when you're the patient, you understand what it means to be patient-centered. And that means uh, caring for the patient in a way that you wanted to be cared for and, and being empathetic and compassionate and being excellent. You know, Bob, vision is one thing, but you got to close the gap and really, really execute. And I understand you had like a one-page roadmap. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So early on, I decided, because again, academic health systems are pretty interesting and complex. And I thought, well, I'm going to try to articulate everything I wanted to do in the next five to 10 years on a one-pager. And I sat there and I wrote out this one pager and um, I think I got it pretty right. It's handwritten. Yeah. Handwritten. Did you share that broadly with the organization I, or is it I, something you kept in your desk? I kept it in my desk, but you know, when they sat, I shouted, this is what a consultant, a low paid consultant did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you've talked a little bit about it, but I, I, I know that you made metrics instrumental to your turnaround and your passion about what you call your dashboard. You know, tell us about that. Right. So as I said early on, uh, this was like flying a plane without control panels. So I got a hold of the head of IT and I said, I want to build a dashboard. And he said, of course, yeah, sure, we'll build a dashboard. And I said, get the people who own the data because that's their silos and we're going to put them in a room with you. And I said, I'm the only person from the administration who's going to be there because I'm going to design it. 
Because if you put five people in the room, everybody's going to say, I want it this way, this way, and nothing gets done. So I took the responsibility. Took two years to design and build. In the process, I fired him too. I got another head who would be uh, much more effective. And I built it the way I wanted it, as I saw it. And of course, there were naysayers in the room. And it turned out to be organic and it was dynamic. And to this day, we have dashboard meetings every month to refine it. And everybody now, it's the only source of truth in the entire organization. Now, you said you built this dashboard the way how you wanted it, but you had to get a lot of input from other people so that they could own it, right? Well, right. In the end, everybody owned it. And part of it was just using it as a means for evaluation. So they had buy-in. It sounded like this was one of those things where you just personally had to champion and then bring people along later. Exactly. Exactly. Because you just knew deep down it was the right thing to do. And people kind of went kicking and screaming. Exactly. How does a leader determine when those things are versus time? taking the time to make sure people are aligned. How do you look at that, that the the decisiveness versus alignment? I think you just know it. I think good leaders have a lot of emotional intelligence. And your emotional intelligence says to you when you have to bring people along and when you just make the decision. You know, a lot of CEOs kind of sit back and they kind of have their people bring stuff to them and, you know, they don't get involved in really making it happen. You seem to be a guy who rolls up their sleeves and get into the detail and and really, you know, if you want it done, you're in there to make sure it's done right. Right. Where'd that come from, Bob? Oh, you know, again, I think it's just part of the DNA. Uh, My wife would say I'm unusual because I'm pretty visionary and I'm into the details. The details are really important for a CEO. If you don't know the details, you really don't know what's going on. But you shouldn't be a micromanager. People want to be successful and feel good about their job. So I think that's the resonant frequency you have to find. Now, you know, obviously you managed out a lot of people. You had to bring in a lot of talent. Did you own the talent process? I mean, how involved did you get in recruiting the top people? Yeah, I I was involved in recruiting the very top people, every one of them. And then, uh, of course, they, if you get good people, they beget good people. And I replaced, I think, 31 of the 34 chairs. Can you tell us a story about a, a talent that you recruited that really made a big difference you know, um, that you're most proud of? Sure, I'm, prou- I'm proud of so many people. Uh, but I'll, I'll give the story of uh, Steve Galletta. Who, who is the head of neurology, a fantastic neurologist. And I knew him at University of Pennsylvania. He did research for me as a resident. And he was a great guy, fantastic student. But I was doing a research project and on, on multiple sclerosis. And he came to me and he said, Bob, I want to work with you. And you know, he didn't know that much, but he was a great runner. He was all Ivy in the hundred yard dash. And I said, Steve, you're going to park the cars (laughs) (laughs) of the patients. And he did a fantastic job. And then, so many years later, I recruit him and he comes to NYU right before Hurricane Sandy. And I spent forever trying to recruit him. And we had a horrible neurology department. And he built it into just the most amazing neurology department with over 250 neurologists now. Yeah, that's that's amazing. You know, you you know, when you have a lot of success, people go, oh, man, look at that success. That's really great. You know, and obviously it is great. But did you have a failure along the way that really ended up being a, a blessing in disguise? 
Well, I think I had a lot of failures. When I was at University of Pennsylvania, I was passed over to be the chairman of the Department of Radiology. I was thought I was pretty good. And that's one of the reasons why I left Penn and went to NYU yeah. and, and made lemonade. <laughs> they definitely did that. You know, how would you describe the culture that you've you've created and how do you gauge that? Well, I'd say our culture is an aspirational culture. And I've heard the term, uh, I think this is a great term, we're an ad hocracy, not a bureaucracy and a meritocracy, but really an ad hocracy. And an ad hocracy meaning if you have a good idea, we're going to partner with you. And the difference is, at NYU Langone, we created a structure, and, and I would say very important in business and in academics, function follows structure. If you don't have a great structure, you can't optimize the function of the organization. And so we created a great structure with minimum barriers and de minimis administration, and that enables us to really uh, function as well as we have. You know, you mentioned uh, Hurricane Sandy. When you have a crisis like that, that's really when you probably find out how good your culture really is. Can, can you tell us that story? Sure. Uh, so that's a great story. And it's a great story about the heart and soul of an institution. Hurricane Sandy was something that nobody was prepared for. And we find out within 12 hours, we have 15 million gallons of contaminated water in our basements and sub-basement. None of the backup systems work, nothing's working. Uh, and the first thing we had to do was evacuate the 320 patients. And once you evacuate the patients, it's all about time and money and leadership. And with Ken's help, he convinced the Democrats and the Republicans to work together in the Congress for this Hurricane Sandy bill for New York and, and the surrounding states. And then it was just about piecing everything together. And part of the decision-making early on, I was confronted with the fact that the institution was going to be shut down. Uh, and actually, the emergency room was shut down for two years. And the hospital was shut down for uh, over 60 days. And I said, we're going to pay everybody. And that's a really important decision. And Ken Langone agreed with it. And it totally uh, made an enormous difference in how everybody felt about the institution. Because, you know, when the chips are down, you see your character and the character of the people who work there, the character of the institution, et cetera. And in the end, I said, we're going to make lemonade out of the lemons. And we were very strong going into Hurricane Sandy already. And we emerged even stronger. Yeah, well, that's amazing. You know, and you know, what's the responsibility of a leader when you have a crisis like that? So I think it's very important to be there. And one of the early things I did was move the senior management team right to the lobby of the hospital. So everybody saw what was going on and all day in, day out, seven days a week, they, they saw us functioning. Uh, and that, I think, uh, provided some confidence. But leaders have to lead and make decisions. And it was all the time about decision making. And an anecdote about that, on a plane ride, I was sitting next to a guy who was a fighter pilot. And I said, what's the hardest thing you do? He said, it's all about instantaneous decision-making every minute, every second. And I think that's what a leader is. They're making decisions all the time. And those decisions ultimately determine success or failure. 
We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Dr. Bob Grossman in just a moment. You know, Dr. Grossman had to take some pretty big risks to turn around NYU Langone Health, and he couldn't have done it without the support of the chairman there, the one and only Ken Langone. Now, Ken is a mentor of mine and a dear friend to boot. And it's funny, in our episode of How Leaders Lead, Ken's supportive style of leadership comes through loud and clear. You want to have an environment where you encourage people to take chances. And if it's an honest, legitimate mistake, their careers aren't at risk. You want people to stick their neck out. Who knows where the next greatest idea is going to come from? To me, what came out of those calls that I hope I encourage these kids to stick their neck out and take chances. I got to tell you, the whole conversation with Ken is full of wisdom and it's one of my favorites. Scroll back in the feed and give it a listen. It's episode 89 here on How Leaders Lead. If you had to boil it down, Bob, and I know this is hard to do because we've already talked about a number of things that you've done. What would be your secret ingredient? <laughs> um, the secret ingredient is uh, having the right people. And uh, with the right people and the right vision uh, and being able to execute that vision, it's going to augur for success. I, I think the right people are so important because one person doesn't do anything, you know, really. It, it's a team of people, and that team has to be focused, uh, driven. Uh, and, uh, and if you have those ingredients, you're going to have success. What would you say is the most unique people challenge you have in your industry? Well, you deal with a lot of thoroughbreds. <laughs> okay, you have, uh, you know, doctors and scientists. I think they're the most brilliant people in the world, and they're all going to win the Nobel Prize. And in general, academics are more negative than positive thinkers, and, and uh, sometimes that's a problem. And physicians, uh, in general, be because they are so focused, they sometimes have difficulty seeing uh, the forest. And yet you've been able to get everybody aligned around this one patient, one chart, one experience focus. You know, what really drove that? And how did you bring your people together to get to make this a, a reality? Well, I tried to um, get people to buy into the vision. Uh, and 15 16 years ago, um, a lot of people couldn't see it. And I thought we could be the best institution in the United States, but it would take a lot of work. And, you know, David, people want to be at the best. They want to be associated with the best, and especially in healthcare. And so to get the majority of people uh, in our organization to think that they could be the best, to have confidence if we did X, Y, and Z, uh, that actually uh, they could see that we were going to move uh, up the rankings and, and be one of the top institutions in the world. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You really coined this one patient, one chart, one experience focus. And, and you've really used an technology as an enabler to make that happen. You know, what advice can you give to leaders on, on how to make technolo technology a, an enabler? 
you have to have the correct technology. Let's begin with that because there's a lot of technology out there and you have to understand uh, what actually works. And for us, uh, when we originally looked at electronic health records, uh, we wanted an enterprise solution. We wanted no interfaces. And the technology became one of the foundational elements on which we could build a health system. So technology uh, is foundational. Uh, it's not the solution, but it helps you get to where you want to be. You know, you've you've expanded from two inpatient facilities to to now six, I believe. You know, you know. I would imagine every time you expand, there's a big discussion about how far you can really stretch your brand. How do you expand your brand into these new 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 venues? Well, you have to be very careful, and brand is very important to us, and we try to be as deliberate as possible. And, and with respect to brand, we also want one culture, one culture. And, and so part of it is the electronic health record helps us because it also uh, enables us to have one type of practice across the entire system. Uh, and you have to be careful. You want to add the correct doctors. You want uh, people who buy into the understanding that this is very patient-centered. Uh, and uh, we expect excellence. We have very high standards. And a lot of people like it. Some people um, may not like it. You, you mentioned culture, and I know you're a big believer in, in, in culture. And, and you summed up your core values with the acronym of, of PRIDE. Tell us about it and, and, and how you drive that deep as a leader. Well, we are a very accountable organization and at the same time, very transparent. Associated with that, we care about performance. We care about respect. Um, we care about integrity, diversity, and excellence. And we live by those values up front and, as I said, totally transparently. And your values uh, really form your culture. You have to uh, walk the walk uh, as well as talk the talk, if you know what I mean. There have to be tangible examples that you can use as teachable moments uh, to express uh, your values. Off the top, can you remember one of those tangible moments where you, where you, you did exactly that? Sure, we do it every day. Uh, we care uh, when somebody violates uh, our integrity. We uh, take appropriate actions. When care is less than excellent, we discuss it openly. We try to learn from uh, our examples, uh, and we try never to make the same mistake twice. And that happens uh, you know, on a daily basis, actually. You say, and I love this, only the lead dog sees new terrain. Uh, you know, uh, what's next? What's next for, for NYU Langone? First of all, is every day is a new day, as you know, in, a, in any business. And what got you there doesn't keep you there. So you have to be very hungry. Everybody has to always... Uh, be aligned. So for us, what's next is we uh, we did, we're in the process of doing a merger in Suffolk County with a small community hospital, but we think it's an important hospital on Long Island. Uh, we hope to have a new hospital around Mineola, which will take, I think, 
five to six uh, or so years. As you said, we are in Florida, particularly in the Palm Beach area, and we hope to build our practice down there. In terms of science here, we're investing in science and investing in scientists. We want to organically uh, grow our scientific endeavors. Uh, in terms of education, we've been on the bleeding edge of changing education. So this year, our medical school is uh, an all three-year medical school. Traditional medical schools are four years. Ours is going to three years. Uh, and I think uh, we reformed our entire curriculum, uh, which uh, I think is makes it even better for students coming to NYU. So there are a lot of things on our plate, and we keep... We're a very uh, aspirational organization. You know, that's a radical thing, you know, in a, in a very established industry to go from a four-year degree to three-year. I mean, that, you, that, is a break, that is a major breakthrough. I mean, how in the world did you pull that off? So we started about uh, seven, eight years ago. The students coming to medical school today are different than when I went. They have far more experience. They've taken more courses. And it doesn't, didn't necessarily make sense to follow a, a, an edict from the earliest part of the 20th century. You know, this, this is a Flexner report, I, I think in 1912 or something like that. And all the medical schools were lockstep with that. And we said, uh, it doesn't make sense because the students are different. And actually the fourth year of medical school um, was a time where uh, most of the students auditioned. They went to other places to see if they could get residency, so they weren't even at your institution. And I thought the crime was that the parents are paying the tuition for the students to be all over the place. And it, <laughs> didn't make sense. it really didn't make sense for a lot of the students. So it, we started a three-year MD program where about 20% of our students uh, took uh, that pathway, and they became very successful. Uh, we have a lot of data for over 100 students who did that. And then uh, a couple of years ago, uh, four years ago, we started a, another small medical school for primary care out in Mineola. And that was an all three-year school, and that was uh, tuition-free as well. And all of those students did great. They just, the first class just graduated. And we said, what the heck is wrong? We should be all three year. And uh, we made that radical change this past year. And I think it's going to work out fantastically. Ken and Elaine Langone, I know, surprised you a few years ago with the announcement that NYU School of Medicine was to be renamed the NYU Robert I. Grossman School of Medicine. You know, that sounds pretty lofty, but tell us a story about that. Uh, yeah, well, I, w I was shocked. So th it's a good story because I'm at this event, which is in the Hall of Dender at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's a beautiful setting. And this was an event to honor Ken and Lane. And as you can imagine, all of Ken's friends were there. It was an incredible evening. Yeah, I was there, actually. I, I remember it. <laughs> well, and, and I'm sort of the master of ceremonies and we do the first part of it and then the second part and uh ken gets up there and i'm looking at my watch and you know 
we try to get out by nine o'clock and the second part didn't start. And I'm saying, oh my God, people are going to be so unhappy because these things start droning on. And, and Ken gets up there in his usual uh, manner and talks about, um, you know, what a great country. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God. And then, <laughs> then he says, and now you're going to hear from my wife, Elaine. And Elaine gets up there and, you know, I'm actually not focused on what Elaine is saying. I'm focused on the clock. And it's about 9.30. And then I see my name up there, the Robert I. Grossman School of Medicine. And I couldn't believe it. <laughs> it was beyond belief. And, you know, I'm so grateful to Ken and Elaine. Uh, as you know, David, they're the greatest people in the world. Yeah, that's great. And, and a well-deserved honor. And everybody, everybody loves standing up and giving you the ovation that you deserve. You know, I like to get into the minds of, of leaders to learn how they make decisions. And we've talked a little bit about this already, but, but at your school of medicine, students get free tuition. Uh, where did that idea come from and how did it become a reality? So the idea actually came from me. Uh, and I was a scholarship kid from uh, the time I started college through medical school. And when you have significant needs, you live from hand to mouth a lot. Uh, and I, I thought, um, you know, it's just unconscionable and a moral imperative uh, for students not to feel the debt burden that they've accrued uh, over uh years of education. And this became onerous where you had students graduating with $200,000 worth of debt, 300,000 if doctors married doctors, you know, five and $600,000 worth of debt. And you just can't get out from under that debt burden. So um, it was really um, something I felt strongly about. Ken bought into it. Uh, you know, it's interesting, David, I'll give you one uh, anecdote here. We used to have lunches for students. You know, you, you, everybody shows up because they are living uh, at the margin, these students. And, and so for us, uh, and Ken agreed, it, it was critically important. And then the question, how to do it? And you have to be focused, and it's a long-term objective. And why haven't so many other schools done it? Because it's very difficult to do. Because the uh, easy thing is to take philanthropy and put it into buildings, put it into something uh, where you can get your name on it. And here, getting a corpus for tuition takes a long time. It took us, I think, 12 years. Just raising the money and getting that done. you know. And plus, you turn the, the hospital into a real profit generator, too, which had to help, right? <laughs> uh, that absolutely helped. But um, you know, this, uh, this was from philanthropic uh, and amazingly generous donors. Yeah, that's great. You know, and what do you remember, Bob, about the day this was announced to the students? Uh, the students couldn't believe it. The students and their parents, it's impossible to really say, they give you uh, the feeling in the room. Uh, and I remember... Uh, one student's uh, father uh, yelling to the student, you made the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the truth was, uh, it, it was overwhelming. And what it did for the students, you know, we surveyed them 
And one of the things they said, it decreased their stress. And it's been almost five years since the day that you made that announcement. And, and, and what's been the biggest challenge that you faced as a result of that decision? Well, the question, I, I, it isn't a challenge. It's a question, you know, when you get something for nothing, do you appreciate it as much? And I hope students do because uh, we worked very hard for it and it was very meaningful to the donors. And sometimes, you know, you just take it for granted. Uh, And that's something we, I don't think it's, I don't think they take it for granted, um, but um, I, I hope not. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting, interesting insight, and and it's true in so many places. But you're just taking such an overwhelming burden off their hands. I'm sure they'll be grateful forever. I hope so. And you know, as Ken said, I hope they remember uh, when they become successful to give back. Yeah, you know, Bob, this has been so much fun talking to you, and and, and I want to have some more with my lightning round of Q and A. So, are you ready for this? Sure. What'd you have for breakfast? Uh, cereal and peanut butter and jelly. Ah, the breakfast of champions and a, and a true doctor. Uh, what's one word others would use to best describe you? Uh, maybe focused. What would you say is the one word that best describes you? Interesting, fun. The, the best word to describe your golf game? Uh <laughs> frustrating (laughs) if you could be one person beside yourself for a day who would it be and why LeBron James (laughs) (laughs) why is that well I, I I can't imagine what it is like to be such a consummate athlete yeah he really is you know and what's the best word you'd use to describe being a doctor I think passionate about what you do uh, the best word to describe being a CEO? Driven. Your biggest pet peeve? Uh, government. Describe your last, I can't believe this is happening to me moment. The real uh, answer is Hurricane Sandy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about that. Right. Uh, your, your, most, your most famous patient? Well, Ken Lango. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what leader do you pull a lot of inspiration from and why? I liked Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower. And because? They were both great leaders and they, and they led uh, in spite of uh, a lot of negativity and tremendous odds. What would I hear if I turned on the radio in your car? Probably Frank Sinatra. <laughs> What's something about you few people would know? I have a, a, a very good eye. You An know, eye for? Everything. I, 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 um, I, you know, as a radiologist, it's all about the vision. And I, I think I see things differently. And, uh, I have different aesthetic tastes and things like that. Yeah, interesting. You know, that's it for the lightning round. Thank you very much. And, uh, I, you know, I keep, keep eating those healthy breakfasts, Bob, you know. <laughs> A couple of final questions, and I'll, I'll let you go. You've had such a remarkable career. When you look at your, your own being, your own person, what's your, what's your unfinished business? I want to continue uh, what we're doing here because uh, we have a lot uh, of uh, unfinished business, uh, and I'm sort of pretty happy where, we, where I am in life. Great, great. And and, uh, what's one piece of advice you'd give anyone who wants to be a a better leader? Find things you're passionate about. 
um, and care deeply uh, about them and uh, focus on them. And it's very important. I think leaders, it's not good enough to have a vision. Uh, you have to be able to execute the vision. And the combination makes you successful. You know, Bob, you you are so passionate and you are such an extremely gifted leader. I, I actually think you're instinctually one of the best leaders I've ever, ever talked to in my oh, entire life. And, and what you're doing is not only changing NYU, NYU Langone, uh, you're changing medicine and you're making the world a better place. Uh, and you're really leaving a lasting mark on the world. And, and I love the fact that you, you've got so much more to do and I know you're going to get it done. And I want to thank you for sharing your story and being with us today. I, I truly appreciate it. Wow, I don't know about you, but my mind is spinning with all the leadership wisdom Bob just shared. How you gotta harness the power of belief, tap into people's aspirations, and just be yourself. You can see how all those lessons have played a role in the incredible turnaround at NYU Langone Health. But it's not just talk. Dr. Grossman doesn't just let people say they're doing a good job. He needs to know those results are really happening and the dashboard he championed has given everyone a clear picture of what's really working and what's not. It's brought transparency and accountability to their work, and it's really made a difference in their overall performance. When you're in charge, it's not enough to have just strong values and ideas. You've also got to create accountability so you can make sure all that good stuff is truly happening in your organization. This week, I want you to come up with one idea to bring more accountability to the work you do. How well do you measure what's working and what's not? Are your metrics visible to the people who need to see them? What kind of structure do you have in place for follow-up and review? Dig into one of those questions this week, because when you find ways to bring more accountability to the work you do, you'll find new levels of excellence too. I'm absolutely sure of it. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders create accountability. Coming up next on How Leaders Lead is Ben Weprin, CEO of AJ Capital and Graduate Hotels. When you're trying to manifest something, you have to be able to tell that story. You have to be able to articulate your unbridled passion and interest very clearly, and people have to believe that you're gonna do it. We're building something that's in the future. You have to be able to believe my story, or you're not gonna invest in being part of that journey. And so the story is, is everything. So be sure to come back again next week to hear our entire conversation. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.